Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. This is Burn by Books, a podcast for listeners who only dream of and give one kind of present at the holidays. I'm your host, Chris Holmes. Last episode, I began with a spoken wish that we would meet again this time with one less fascist in charge of a world power. And while this is happening in the proper fashion of our republic, We still bite our fingernails as the last month stretches to what feels like years. The cipher of a man will inevitably exit the great seat of power, but his legacy of venal self-interest lives on in the form of a raging pandemic, a hundred-year virus that has been allowed to take root here in a fashion more deadly than almost anywhere else in the world. As we pass by the 3,000 dead-per-day mark, vulgarly explained as a new September 11th every day, the president has abdicated his responsibility to guide the nation's response, knowing that, inconceivably, 74-plus million-odd Americans will never blame him for it. There's lots of talk now of COVID fatigue, of a country tired of the sacrifices the virus requires. But the horrible truth is that while 300,000 people lost their lives to COVID-19, most Americans have sacrificed very little. If we were waiting for a call to the common good from the White House, an acknowledgement of how communal sacrifice would lead to measured relief, then we waited in vain. But in the absence of that call, the supposed spine of individual responsibility in the average American proved weak, easily bent to the selfishness of our cravings for normality. This is, of course, grossly visible in the refusal by large swaths of the country to wear masks, the easiest and only available prophylactic against the virus. The refusals absurdly tied to a misguided understanding of freedom, one that ignores the principal freedom of others in which the Constitution so clearly invested the right to life. But that selfishness showed itself in less profane but equally deadly ways, indoor gatherings with maskless friends and family, millions of travelers on planes and in cars over Thanksgiving, the endless parade of small, selfish decisions of which I too am very guilty that put others at risk and rejected the very nature of a social contract. While other countries have made truer sacrifices, more sustained individual pain and loneliness for the common good, we have been treated to the daily witness of men with guns protesting against the barest of regulations designed to save lives and slow the pre- spread of the virus. 
as well. We see how the punishments of the virus are meted out with the same racial inequalities that mark nearly every aspect of life in America. None of this takes away from the trauma and mourning that sit like a heavy weight on the chests of so many who have lost loved ones or who struggle to recover after the infection. Nor does it take away from the real sacrifice of those branded essential workers who have spent every day in dangerous situations for the betterment of society. That broad, ugly sacrifice will only grow, and the guilt falls on us communally as a nation of the selfish. In the months that follow, the dark winter that epidemiologists warned of in the summer, I hope that our encounter with the trauma of loss encourages us to act in the vacuum of moral leadership left by this craven, petty president. We owe it to those who lost and those who remain. The show today is a special one. At the 10-guest mark, I finally have my first poet. And what a poet. Valgina Mort is one of the great contemporary poets, both in English and in Belarusian. We discuss her newest collection, Music for the Dead and Resurrected, which has landed with a boom on nearly every major list of the top books of 2020. I particularly wanted to talk with Valgina about the anti-democratic violence that is wreaking havoc on Belarus, a tragedy largely ignored by Europe and the United States. But first, I wanted to briefly recommend a quartet of novels. Ali Smith's Seasonal Quartet, Autumn, Winter, Spring, and Summer, the last of which will be featured on my 2020 list for best books of the year, which will be released with the January episode. These novels are the greatest experiment with contemporaneity that I've ever encountered. I would go as far as to say that they exist in an instant of time exactly parallel to the moment of their creation. It feels like a dark magic bargain was required for Smith to be able to compose them, which is not to say that they are merely catalogs of contemporary events, although they are certainly that. Summer, for instance, watches the surging of COVID-19 while surveying the final Brexit at the unsteady hand of Boris Johnson. There's the racist populism and climate change denialism that populate our news streams. But they are also grand storytelling and ingenious stretchings of the novel form that make room for meditations on art in times of mourning agonies over familial devotion and betrayal, a retelling of Pericles in lockdown, nods to Charlie Chaplin, Rilke, and Beethoven, and some of the most powerful and tender examinations of how our memories bind us together in difficult times. The beauty of this quartet comes at the overlap of narrative and the magical-seeming encapsulation of our brilliant and ravaged now. They can be read in any order, but start with summer for the shock of how any work of art could be so current, so present. Let's get to my interview with Valgina Mort. You're going to want to hear her read every poem of hers aloud. Thanks for being here.
Welcome back to Burn by Books. It is my great pleasure to welcome Valgina Mort to the show. Valgina was born in Minsk, Belarus, and moved to the United States in 2005, where she is a professor in the Department of English and Creative Writing at Cornell University. She's the author of three poetry collections, Factory of Tears, Collected Body, and most recently, Music for the Dead and Resurrected. She has been awarded the Lannan Foundation Fellowship, the Amy Clampett Fellowship, and the Bess Hotkin Prize for Poetry. Her work has been shortlisted for the Forward Prize for the Single Best Poem and has appeared in Best American Poetry, The New Yorker, Poetry, Poetry International, Granta, and many others. She is a translator between English, Belarusian, Russian, Ukrainian, and Polish. Valgina's poetry is glorious contrapuntal music. It is acid-tongued and lyrical, and atonal and melodious, frightening and riotously funny, and always, always truthful, even when it tells lies. Having heard many contemporary poets over the years, I can say that Valgina stands with the likes of Ilya Kaminsky and Yusef Komenyaka as one of the great performers of her own work. Her newly published Music for the Dead and Resurrected sings in letters to ancestors and stands as a bulwark against the noxious propaganda of Soviet and Belarusian political language. It is a mourning for lost stories and an exhuming of the bones of untold history. Welcome to the show, Valgina Mord. Thank you so much, Chris, for these uh, vivacious, beautiful words. Uh, I'm very happy to be here with you and congratulations on your wonderful podcast. Thank you so much. We're so thrilled to have you. The opening poem to your most recent collection Antigone, a dispatch, landed with enormous impact at the New Yorker. In some ways, it was an accompaniment to your powerful op-ed on the anti-democratic violence in Belarus that is largely being ignored by the world's democratic powers. In that op-ed, you write, quote, Belarusians have lived under state violence for decades, but in its intensity and its brutality, in its effort to punish the Belarusian people for dreaming of something better, the repression marks a new low in the country's history. In order for us to best discuss this collection, it would be helpful if you would lay out how we got to this most recent escalation of state violence in Belarus. Oh, thank you for this question, Chris. It's a really important one. Um, interestingly, the poem uh, to Antigone Dispatch was accepted by the New Yorker in February, so uh, half a year before the violence would begin, mm. um, and which is sometimes a frightening thing about art and poetry in particular, in that it does not really address the past as much as it imagines the future. Mm -hmm. And um, though I, of course, write in it and um, celebrating my acceptance, my first acceptance at the New Yorker, I couldn't have imagined um, uh, how prophetic um, the violence of, the, of this poem would be for our today's reality. Mm -hmm. um, in um, 
early August, on August 9th, uh, Belarus held its uh, presidential elections and um, uh, Alexander Lukashenko has been elected for the sixth time. Yeah. You cannot see me doing the quotation marks, yeah. <laughs> as they say, elected, because the evidence of fraud was documented early on, already before the election, when we do not allow any foreign observers during the elections in Belarus. Uh, but people were very enthusiastic this year, and so a lot of them volunteered, were volunteering to be observers. And then um, they were very surprised that um, they were turned away hmm. and uh, not allowed to observe. And the, um, the state had its own lists of people who would be observing, um, which were all state employees, many of them, sadly, teachers at schools, because um, uh, schools, academic system in Belarus serves the government and uh, the state ideology. And of course, like in the USA, too, the, a lot of polling places are in schools, mm -hmm which is, I find, a really remarkable connection. <laughs> right? Because we're truly electing our future right in schools, not just every four years, but every day when mm -hmm. our kids go to school there. So, um, but uh, independent observers were not allowed in. And there were these uh, hilarious pictures of people standing on little chairs outside of school buildings with binoculars looking into the oh, windows. Wow. And they were, they were the observers, so oh they were gosh. not allowed in. And they looked like that with binoculars from outside. And then they were arrested. When these pictures were spread around and people were talking about fraud and how they cannot trust an election carried out like that, uh, these observers were also arrested. And then on the night of the election, people were waiting for the results because every polling station posts, counts the results and then posts them on the door of the school. And um, so every neighborhood has a school and everybody knows each other. So everybody was out there in the yards in front of schools. Children are playing in the playgrounds nearby and people were waiting. It was kind of very joyful, actually, uh, because it was also for the first time that people recognized their neighbors as somebody who cared about the results. Mm -hmm. And so people were getting to know each other and introducing each other there. Um, and then, um, so the results, in some polling stations, the results never came out. Instead, riot police came and it escorted the polling workers out. So people who posted the results that reflected the fact that Lukashenko had just a tiny percentage of votes, they were immediately arrested by riot police. And people who tried to defend them and to speak to the police of uh, def uh, um, detaining these polling workers, the teachers of their children, really, uh, they were detained too. And then in other polling stations where the results were not published, 
the riot police came to escort the polling workers out so that they didn't have to address the voters waiting mm. outside. And, uh, and then people came out to the streets. It was uh, uh, and still remains a protest remarkable in its peacefulness so much that it's impossible to even call it a protest. It's kind of just a walk out. People walk out. So people walked out into the streets and um, they, there were lots of families outside um, and um, and then suddenly vans military vans arrived great quantity of them uh, stun grenades were thrown into crowds of people who were just gathered out um, outside and um, violence began it was unprecedented nobody nobody expected it people were out with with small children yeah. uh, uh, old and young were out and um, nobody quite thought that um, such violence could be opened in response to nothing really happening mm -hmm. <laughs> right? mm -hmm. no, nobody was doing anything and um, in fact to this day the only broken window uh, that remains since broken um, <laughs> since August is one broken by police oh. uh, because people were running away uh, and uh, they hid inside a coffee shop and because we everybody there's great solidarity and everybody understands that if you do not help somebody running uh you uh, might send this person uh passively into prison where they would be tortured mm. so a coffee shop opened doors to people running and then they locked them in front of the police they locked the doors and um, they would not these waitresses would not open the door to police and and then police started smashing windows and that was the only act of you know property damage that happened in belarus during these protests and now people walk out and anybody who walks out on um a Saturday or a Sunday can be detained. So you might be just walking to your car and you might be detained. Is there a 100% uh, curfew on the weekend? No. So there is no curfew because that would announce a military, uh, like a military state, right? Um, it, because a lot of these detentions happen in m the morning, play daylight, Mm -hmm. It's not something so it's not something that happens in the night when people strategically come out to the streets. No, um, anybody who walks outside on a Sunday, which is a day of a big peaceful match march for everybody on Saturday, women march and on Monday, si senior citizens march, <laughs> mm -hmm. meaning that when everybody goes to work, they're retired people march on a Monday and on Thursday is um, people with disabilities march, which is also very full of violent detentions. You, it's really quite something to see the violence and these men in uniform uh, from head to toe um, detaining people in wheelchairs. My goodness. Uh, 
And these uh, have remained entirely peaceful, as I understand, the, the protests themselves, and then met with just extreme violence. That's yeah, and that's kind of the philosophy behind these protests because they're not political, right? And they're not um, there are no real political demands there. They're just walkouts in which people say, kind of, I live here, I exist, um, I'm a voice, um, and um, to use American language, I matter, <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and um, and th- there's nothing more that they do. And uh, and so anybody can be... And a lot of people are detained just randomly like that when they're returning from a grocery store. Hmm. Or they might be on the way to school to pick their child up. Anybody on the street is, a, is in danger. And uh, during these court hearings... The question that the judge would ask you is not, why did you scream at police? Why did you throw a rock? Um, the question is, why were you outside? Huh. <laughs> so that's kind of your crime, that you're walking outside. Or we have um, people detained because they posted photos of themselves outside hmm. um, and somewhere on social media for instance, our it's remarkable how it's not really it will show this example how non-political it is because it's our beauty queen, our Miss Belarus 2008 <laughs> and um, uh, who made a, took a picture of herself and posted it on Instagram and, and was arrested. And she has been uh, in jail for over a month now. Oh my goodness uh, for that picture. And she has not been allowed to shower or clean her teeth. And I think that during this over a month term, she has been taken outside only once. This is both so um, terrifyingly sort of otherworldly and at the same time so recognizable as the way that kind of state violence operates and uses the excuse of of rioting um, to stamp out even the most basic elements of of human dignity and it's it's shocking to hear you say that Antigone uh, Dispatch was was composed before this, because in so many ways it feels like um, it is sort of singing out to that precise uh, event that you're talking about. Would you be willing to read the poem for us? Um, yes, with pleasure. And I would also preface by saying that uh, this poem is dedicated, is addressed to a place um, right out uh, in the outskirts of Minsk, there's a forest called Kurapati. And in 1988, mass burials were discovered in that forest. Um, those burials are from executions that happened during the 30s. They were carried out by NKVD, by Bolsheviks, um, carried out on um, Stalin's orders. And until now, the archives are closed. Uh, we do not know who exactly is buried there and how many people are buried there. Mm. Um, because, of course, um, 
the the enemies always from the outside right but the idea that we ourselves would be killing our own people mm-hmm. is not something that um our state is willing to to discuss the fact that um you know of course we grew up in eastern europe with a this um a narrative of fascism and how we are the country that defeated it um but to think that we ourselves could have been um fascists to one another uh, is still an inconceivable thought. And so this this is the burial that is addressed here. But when the torture, news of the torture broke out in August, people formed a human chain between their uh, prison in Minsk, where people were tortured, and this forest. Hmm. So it was a really, really long kilometers long chain of um, people just standing because that's what we do. That's our protest. We just stand outside. So they were connecting. They were connecting what was happening in the prison in Minsk with that forest. That's amazing. To Antigone, a dispatch. Antigone. Dead siblings are set. As for the living, pick me for a sister. I, too, love a proper funeral. Drag Digan sisters, pop-up burial. Landlady, I make the rounds of graves, keeping up my family's top-notch properties. On a torture instrument called an accordion, I stretch my bones into fingers of a witch. My guts have been emptied like bellows for the best sound. Once we settle your brother, I'll show you forests of the unburied dead. We'll clean the way only two sisters can clean a house. No bones scattered like dirty socks. No ashes at the bottom of kneecaps. Why bicker with husbands about dishes when we've got mountains of skulls to shine? Labor and retribution will share, not girly secrets. Brought up by dolls and monuments, I have the bearings of a horse and a bitch. I'm cement in tears. You can spot my grace from afar, marble like newborn skin. Here, history comes to an end like a movie with rolling credits of headstones, with nameless credits of mass graves. Every ditch, every hill is suspect. Pick me for a sister, Antigone. In this suspicious land, I have a bright shovel of a face. Thank you. That's a remarkable poem. There are so many of these um, references to forests and patches of and sometimes unnamed dirt and fields and this connection between the the bodies underneath and unnamed that cannot speak for themselves that seem to kind of raise up their hands from the ground in these poems um how do you think about the the literal geography of belarus as you're as you are thinking about these poems what what is its meaning for you oh thank you um it is a very meaningful 
question that you're raising here, uh, because, well, Belarus is a very foresty country, um, which is why our partisan movement, for instance, was so successful during World War II, um, where country covered by forests and also bogs Mm. Um, uh, in them, particularly in the south of the country. And for me, um, the place of a forest um, is a kind of a mystical um, fairy tale place mm-hmm. where the dead and the living meet. All right. It's a kind of a borderland um, landscape between the life and death. Um, and um, uh, the final poem in the book um, is about the bison in the Bilaveja forest, which um, is located in the southwest of Belarus, is a primordial, um, ancient, beautiful, dense woods. Um, and in it lives this huge animal, this largest bison in Europe. Um, and uh, it's kind of rare and um uh, it uh, and uh grand and frightening and um i thought of this bison of this animal of this very of its very sobering and sad glance hmm. and stare as I call him the bison of history uh, as a play on angel of history. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I thought of he, it as a kind of a Belarusian angel um, uh, of history that comes out of the depth of the, wound, of the woods and that carries that knowledge of the dead, of the violence, which is otherwise not really discussed Um in our society. Um, as I say, we, I of course grew up with the narrative of World War II as a formative narrative. From very, very young age, um, I knew that I lived in a country that defeated fascism. I lived in a country in which our grandparents sacrificed our lives so that we could be alive. And so I was that prized hoped for generation mm-hmm. of peaceful happy people um and um but and yet um there was uh, there was th- this story of the 40s and the triumph of the soviet union over the nazi germany uh it was overshadowing uh all of the rest of our history Particularly, it was standing in the shadow of what happened to us in the 30s. Um, as I was saying earlier, what what happened when uh, neighbors were reporting on neighbors, when neighbors were executing neighbors, when the enemy was us, ourselves. Um, and, um, and we see now how these days, in this past month, since August, it's the memory of that uh, that has been triggered. Uh, there, uh, this horrifying thought that our neighbors are the executors, that the um, fathers of our friends are the fascists, 
mm. uh, that they are the ones putting those black ski masks on their faces, going off to work um, to beat us, right? And um, and so that's those stories were nowhere to be found. I grew up with the stories of my grandmother, and uh, the metaphor I use in the book is the burning reactor of her memory uh, that I was exposed to. Uh, and uh, she obsessively repeated the stories of our family, uh, of a family lost in the 30s, disintegrated in the 30s. Mm. Um, and um, there was no place for those kind of stories anywhere in the official history. Her stories were not applicable to me anywhere in school or outside of school. And it was, it took me a long time to understand that um, the wound of that invisibility. And once I understood it, um, I, I had the great desire for proper burials. Um, I, I thought that there, um, well, if I'm, how how is the gratitude for my life expressed then to my ancestors? Because it's true that in Eastern Europe we are all grandchildren of accidental survivors, right? Survivors who um, managed to live by accident, by chance. So and um, it really hurt me that um, these people are completely absent. Uh, completely invisible and the story really is that there is no story that there is there are no mm -hmm. stories of them to tell and all you can do is bury them properly but there are no bodies either um so it helps to be a poet in that moment <laughs> i was i was thinking about this idea of your attempting to kind of archive these these stories as connected to um, belarusian itself as a as a mm -hmm. language you you write poetry both in english and and belarusian and um, in the poem Music for a Girl's Voice and Bison, there's a striking section in which the speaker describes the habit of taking books written um, in Belarusian to the pool with her. The language used to describe that is, is precisely of the body. Quote, I would open my book exposing the alphabet of my language, the inked goose flesh of its unheard of perverted signs, sweat and chlorine, crush of snacks and clogged ears. The changing room was a womb. My strange letters, chromosomes, viruses multiplied in the warm, moist air. Do you feel an imperative um, to sort of to pull out that kind of chromosomal nature of your language and have it stand as part of this archive of these stories that have no place in the official history to be kind of like that bison demanding and and snorting um in in kind of fury for room for that sort of story Yes, though um, it is so, but this imperative is very personal and is very intimate. Um, and um, that question that repeats like a refrain from a po through a poem attempt at genealogy, where am I from? It is a very personal question in which um, at a certain moment um, 
in my life, I realized that uh, kind of as a person in a family belonging to a certain lineage, to a certain family, I'm really standing on empty air. Um, that I do not know where my people are from. I do not mm-hmm. know what their lives was like, uh, their lives were like. And um, in that, um, but also there is a larger absence of Belarus in a world idea of itself, mm-hmm. which is this subversive um, infiltration by language, by alphabet in um, this Italian swimming pool, in the changing room, uh, because it it speaks to that uneasy relationship with Europe, um, in which, uh, you know, we in Belarus think of ourselves as Europeans, yet often Europeans do not think of us Mm -hmm. um, as uh, as Europeans, and um, do not imagine us in their idea of European picture and history. Um, and um, so uh, it's um, until uh, it was at the moment when Svetlana Alexievich received the Nobel Prize, when uh, it was really jarring to feel how things could be different. Um, that truly you could be known and that you could um see you could see somebody else with a book written about your country about your history by a person from your own experience so i would walk um on the street and i will see her books in the bookstores or i will see people reading her book on the subway um which is kind of, it took some time for that, you know, because when she received the Nobel Prize, all the translations of her books were outdated. Hmm. It took like about two years for things to start really appearing and being published. I remember trying to get a a, a copy yeah. early on and it was it was clear it was going to be a while. Yeah, yeah. And so when, when uh, suddenly she was visible and her books became visible and with them, our voices, because her books are so polyphonic, so they're not just um, some kind of imagined novels, which I love to read, but they are they're, uh, the archives of voices. I was It was deeply, deeply moving to be seen like that. And, um, and so um, this, um, this act of bri- taking these Belarusian books around um, and thinking, am I the only, it was, this poem was written in Italy, and I thought, am I the only person in this country reading a Belarusian writer right now in Belarusian? Probably mm. yes. Mm-hmm. And it's a strange and isolating and lonely thought, thought of being in the world as a poet, uh, culturally. Um, and um, so this this question, where am I from, and this idea of infiltrating Europe uh, and the world with our alphabet, with the sound of our language, yeah, it's it's really it's really important to me. In the attempt at genealogy, um, there are letters by Václav um, written in 1946. 
because the name Václav is associated with Václav Havel, mm -hmm. a lot of readers ask where I'm talking about Václav Havel's famous, amazing, powerful letters. But it's not so. Um, their letters um, exchanged between my grandmother and her older brother, uh, who was um, evacuated uh, right before the war because he was in a kids' camp. And so the camp was evacuated and he never returned home. And after the war, he went to Moscow and he studied, he enrolled in college. And my grandmother and him exchanged letters. And, um, and then she said, and then when she told me this, I felt like I was about like to touch the, the meaning of my life mm -hmm. because I said, so do you have them? Uh, and she lost them. Oh no! And it was it was so um, horrible to learn that to because I felt in that moment that only if I could read that exchange between the two of them, if I could see his handwriting, um, if I could touch this paper that he touched, um, I, that that would be enough you know, <laughs> and that that would reconnect me to something because there's just nothing left. In Belarus, we live in that situation where everything has been burned and even the dead had to die elsewhere. They were displaced. <laughs> and so there's just nothing to hold on to. Um, and so inanimate objects are so important to me, and they uh, come up in the book a lot. And forests, even a tree, is just another, to go back to your previous question, is another witness that I look at as somebody who saw those people who were made disappeared, mm -hmm. who heard them, who saw the executions, who saw them being loaded into buses and driven away and um and these are kind of the only witnesses left and the and long the long history of a single tree allows for a kind of grasping of that that arc of of history and seeing it in a way that even the kind of truthlessness of the current regime can't evacuate it is it is so true and that's a kind of a feeling that i had um, since early childhood, I had that relationship with trees, with things like wallpaper or curtains. Um, we also display a lot of photographs, especially people in the rural areas uh, put very enlarged, enlarged photographs of the family on the walls. Um, and um, so I always felt watched uh, by this by the trees and by inanimate objects and um, felt that they were dressing me in some way felt that they were saying why you know why do you walk back and forth why do you read books or watch tv why wouldn't you talk to us instead hmm. don't you understand that we have seen things that we have always been here watching and listening. Um, and um, it is only listening to us and touching, touching us, you can, um, you could really understand something about yourself. Um, 
seeing a person's handwriting is a very moving experience because it is um, seeing the body, hmm. the hand, the hand in action, the hand that wiped tears, the hand that cooked, the hand that uh, was placed on the heads of children or the loved ones, the hand that closed the eyes of the dead, right? It's the same hand that writing letters, diaries. Um, So um, I always love seeing and I'm always moved by seeing uh, handwriting and diaries and drafts. And the loss of those letters um, was in many ways, the impetus between, uh, um, behind a lot of these poems, that kind of bitterness, that look at that, those letters were post-war, so there was a chance for them to be. You have a you have a moment in one of your poems in which you say, a family tree is not a tree but a rosebud, petals tied together, mouths down, um, and it and it feels like a very upsetting way of of thinking about a, um, a genealogy and a and a legacy that is in in some way connected to what you're saying about these sort of these lost um, letters and lost stories. Um, yes, I feel very strongly that our world is not just the world of the living as we try to pretend it to be. It is a world that we do share with our dead. Um, and um, I so the family tree sprawled out, uh, traced far, you know, far into past centuries. Yeah, I feel very bitter about looking at those kind of trees. Mm. But I also do not feel so spread around and so uh, I do not feel to be on a different branch from my ancestors. Uh, I feel that I am like a petal in a folded bud. We're all touching. Hmm. We're all kind of uh, simultaneously together, simultaneously opening and falling. And um, that uh, the dead are always present. They're always with us. And this idea of a linear time that poetry rejects by being vertical <laughs> and not just horizontal. Mm-hmm. Um, and so in it, and in a poetic thinking, they are present with us because we're not going, we're not moving from the past into some kind of future, but we are always, um, all of our memories, everything that we treasure, everything that we hold dear is happening to us. Uh, in each given moment. Um, and so I think that we we try, of course, to uh, tame ourselves to be socially presentable. And we think of the socially presentable ways to grieve or to be happy or to be depressed or lost. Um, but I think that inside us is such chaos of time uh, in which the past is present and the dead are present. And um, it is a strange thought to me to think, for example, that uh, my grandmother is dead, that she is no longer living. 
because um, she's very much present inside me. Uh, the memory of her is so much present in my mind in every moment. Hmm. So what does it mean then to be dead? It feels to me that music in the collection is another way for you to deal with this non-linearity of time. Yeah. And it's really everywhere. It's in nocturnes and raised voices and psalms and piano key coffins in a series of scenes of music practice and very often in the sounds of accordion playing. Yeah. If I'm not mistaken, you studied the accordion for quite some time. How did it end up becoming something like the musical mood for this collection? Um, it became the musical mood for the collection, accordion specifically, when I realized that I was made to do to do accordion, and I did it daily, uh, very thoroughly, very Soviet style, <laughs> of practicing. Um, I did it because my grandmother's father liked music, and he died when she was very young, um, uh, in, a, in a war for the western territories of Belarus, he was not much of a soldier, right? He was a farmer who loved music, had a beautiful singing voice. That's all according to my grandmother. Um, and uh, liked instruments, playing them. And, um, and it was also a kind of a shocking realization that my whole childhood was shaped because this man that I never knew and my grandmother barely knew liked music. Hmm. Um, and there was also kind of, for me, a relief and anger in understanding this moment that she was working through her, through her traumas, <laughs> <laughs> through her own loss, um, when uh, she insisted that I play music not just for fun or as a hobby, um, but um, seriously that you could only do it seriously and you know you cannot play you um cannot do i don't know watch tv no you have to practice music four hours every day um and of course accordion is a, a quiet instrument to hold and to embrace it is a very physical instrument in that it's heavy it's large it sits between your legs and um, it um, you have to be attached to it with the belts that go around your back and um, and it looks legs. literally like a, a pair of lungs breathing breathing in yeah. and out yes exactly that's a beautiful metaphor uh, for for what it is and so it's that kind of breathing, breathing through music. And lungs are important, particularly works well as a metaphor, because um, accordion is all about the bellows and the control of the bellows, the air in them. And But music also is such a supreme form of organizing that cares of, that cares of what it means to be a human being, I think, and what it means to organize our lives. Mm. Um, and um, I think it gives a shape 
to to lie to our lives to our brains um i like to to think that bach is somebody who 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 kind of made a model of a human brain <laughs> with music with sound um i love that image uh so um music is gives gives a shape it gives a structure that can carry us through through life i'm remembering now something um that has been circulating online because it was clarice lispector's birthday mm. a couple of days ago and somewhere she writes am i a monster or is this what it means to be human hmm. um and i think that music is that kind of a way of um organizing the monstrosity of what it means to be human into a truly human mm-hmm. and humane shape and form and structure. And um, when my grandmother was telling me her stories, the radio was always on. Uh, she was obsessed with the radio because the wars are announced on the radio. Mm-hmm. So we could never speak over the radio. Um, in our family, um, and but uh, the radio played a lot of classical music, and so it was always the background, the soundtrack to our lives, to our stories. And um, thinking after finishing writing this book, I thought about how much music helped us cope my family, me particularly, how much that whole time that sound on the radio of Mozart, of Rachmaninoff, of Skriabin, how much it was helping me cope with the reality that was so confusing and violent and um, mute and verbose at the same time. Mm. There's there's an event that shadows a number of the the poems and i think in some ways stands in for the kind of the the larger monster of humanness whether it is shaped or unshaped uh and that is the legacy of of the chernobyl nuclear disaster um and how much it affect belarus and and how much it creeps in um to your poems particularly in the haunting gamma rays which imagines these music lessons. It's, um, I'm sure it is both you and, and not you at the same time. And with that, uh, Chernobyl radio station in, in the background. And you write, um, my mission, I combat gamma rays with music octaves. Can you talk a little bit about Belarus's experience of the Chernobyl disaster and your own um, memories of how your family sort of reckoned with it? Um, yes, um, it is a, such an important question. And usually Belarus is not a country, surprisingly to me, that people think about when they hear about Chernobyl because they're... Um, nuclear station is located in Ukraine, but it is located on the border uh, with Belarus, and uh, 70% of the radiation fallout came on to Belarus. Um, 70%? Of, wow. 
Yeah, some of it was with rains and winds because the wind was towards us, towards the north uh, east, and um, and some of it also was um, uh, shooting of the clouds over us. You know how the government sometimes do that um, when they need the sky to be clear. And what happened was that with the northeastern wind, the clouds were going onto Russia, onto Moscow. And so they were shot at uh, over Belarus so that they could not proceed. And so these black rains fell on, on us uh, with nobody being evacuated on time, with no information given. Uh, it was something that was silenced for uh, for a long time, and it was just passed around as some kind of um, warnings, right? But and but also uh, immediately mythologized gossip. <laughs> mm-hmm. So on the one hand, so on the one hand, we didn't know anything; nothing was told to us. So when those uh, April rains started after a long winter. Everybody was very happy that spring was coming, and uh, we are an agricultural country. We, we uh, at, and especially at that time, there were no like imports of uh, vegetables. Right, we eat our own stuff, so uh, that, that we grow, and um, uh, so all of that was consumed either falling on us or by eating. Um, and, um, mm. uh, you know, people were sent to the Chernobyl zones to uh, liquidate the disaster without proper gear. But I also know somebody who is a dancer, now lives in Germany, and he was a very young man then. And they were sent for entertainment of their of the workers who were there liquidating the disaster. And, uh, and so they were artists uh, who, like a dance, a dance ensemble, who were performing there in the evenings. So those men there would not go nuts, huh. right? That's incredible. And, and also, of course, they were there without any proper gear or anything like that. Um, so... Um, so that was there, and I remember how uh, we we had a summer house. We grew everything of our own, and um, I remember that my mother was saying that we should just eat a lot of mushrooms because mushrooms take the toxins out, and also that she was convinced that what we grew was safe to eat. Uh, and um, but then there were these stories. And because there was nothing was officially admitted or discussed, there was nothing was opened, open sort, right? In open, in the open, uh, there were just this horrifying gossip about monsters, hmm. uh, animal monsters, human monsters. Um, we knew that they were photographed and displayed somewhere in Europe. Um, so that you, so that Belarusian children would be would travel to Europe on these Chernobyl programs, um, 
where they would spend a su- every summer in Germany or in Italy, um, breathing good air and eating good food. Um, so we knew that somewhere there were these photographs displayed, but we never saw them. We only talked about babies born with two heads. You know, we talked about some giant hedgehogs or (laughs) (laughs) all of this. It was a myth immediately. It was mythologized. And I was four, so I was at the age of fairy tales. And suddenly this brother's grim, very grim and scary fairy tales, they became um, kind of real and mythical right here, right there at home. Um, and uh, it was true that there were somewhere these dead zones, right, where monsters wandered around. And so uh, there was no need for um, a witch in mm-hmm. the forest. We, ha- we had our own. And um, there was that um, kind of thinking um, that for me is very important, that metaphorical thinking, which is not for me about style or embellishment, but that idea that nothing is what it seems, that nothing that is said is true, and that you always have to look twice to question your vision and your hearing is uh, kind of inborn uh, in, in already and is very natural and close for me to peer into everything and to see radiation inside it. Hmm. Um, but also that it becomes immediately the metaphor for history too, that history of violence that also is present all over Belarus as a kind of radiation. The um, the Soviet era and then obviously the Lukashenko era, era are, are marked by that Orwellian emptying out of truth from official language and the way that famously um, the denial of the Chernobyl disaster and, Mm -hmm. as you say, having to look at everything, everything twice Um, and that leaking of that kind of empty language into the everyday seems um, what you're trying to oppose in poetry, a language of visual melodic and rooted truths what do you see as the the poet's value to a nation that has been deprived of meaningful language it's i think that first of all it's probably not right to have some kind of concrete answer to it mm, mm-hmm, um, it's a kind of a yeah it's a kind of a question i think to which we come back and hmm. any in, in any new generation um but for me, it is um, noticing and remembering. Yes, noticing beyond beyond that kind of official narrative. It was really scary to see what was happening in the past um, four years. But then it turns out not just four years in this country, mm-hmm. with with also with official narratives and with cliches that are nothing but propaganda. Um, uh, yet somehow, uh, like with us and fascism, uh, often Americans seem to think that propaganda is something that happens elsewhere, um, and uh, and that this Russian word does not apply um, to the American situation. 
Well, I uh, think the, the the Trump administration, <laughs> with its sort of arch, almost comically propagandized use of, of language, um, is for some people allows a kind of like blinders to go up to how that that language more subtly has uh, been illustrative in thinking about most of the United States's um, governmental mm -hmm. language, things like the Patriot Act or the Clean Air Act or yeah. all these yeah. things that are equally propagandistic but get to hide behind this most recent clownish version of it. Yes, and you say the word subtly, but so for me, as for a poet, there's nothing subtle <laughs> about it. <laughs> it's true. That was the wrong word. <laughs> yeah, and uh, but it's also what has been happening, of course, in Belarus uh, for for over two hundred years, but particularly now under uh, the twenties almost 30 years now of Lukashenko. And in August, um, the most blatant example, uh, right, when, um, when our TV, we have the state TV channel that a lot of people watch um, and um, get their, all of their news from. It's a little bit of our version of Fox News and all of those radio shows um, um, and um, <laughs> that are so popular among um, some people here. Uh, so the workers of that channel went on a strike. And it was uh, absurd and ironic. The thread was that if they would not be allowed to, if they're not allowed to speak about violence, what they will do is that they will start speaking the truth. <laughs> so they will they will stop being what they are. <laughs> so um and um, they were all fired. Hmm. And within a day, within 24 hours, journalists were imported from Russia. And the channel went on working and doing hmm. what it is still doing with this um pro-regime Russian journalists, while all of our independent uh, news uh, resources have been stripped of their news titles, their news licenses, and um, their uh, police targets aims rubber bullets specifically at journalists wearing press jackets. Mm -hmm. Um, and the journalists are being arrested as they're covering the events live, so as they're doing their work. Um, and, um, uh, and the police is particularly violent and merciless towards journalists. That, um, yeah, that fear of being able to speak with clarity for things that are being try that the government is trying to layer over with these sort of veneers of um, empty language is it's so omnipresent. 
I wanted to take us in a little bit of a different direction with one of my favorite poems in the collection, which is to Ingeborg Bachmann in Rome, um, which stands as a kind of an ode to an Austrian poet um, who, like you, spent some time writing in Rome. Would you be willing to read the poem and then talk a little bit about your sense of connection to Bachmann? Yes, thank you, Fris, for asking me to read it um, with big pleasure. To Ingeborg Bachmann in Rome. You're not the last woman. You're not the last woman to burn in Rome, Ingeborg. On the high foreheads of apartments just off the beaten path, everything's polished. Wooden furniture, silver teeth, the past. After three baths a day, after 40 years of exposing your lungs to open books, you are in bandages. Ingeborg in coma, in white bandages, Ingeborg is a prince's bride worthy of that burnt poet, Giordano Bruno. Stretched out, face up on the balcony over Via Giulia, did you know there are balconies where no one can stretch? where you'd have to tiptoe strategically among jars of pickled mushrooms, crates of potatoes, liters of compote, where language is a dog on a chain of iron words, where punishment is a hundred lashes of silence. Apartment buildings stand somber. Ingeborg, could they know that inside them people die and cry? In the night, when the last women are getting home, shopping bags over the basilic vein as if after drawing blood, women who weigh the worth of things on their brows and know the best polish for any damaged surface. The sounds of things occupy the city of men. The car door slams, bottle bang in recycling bins, basilicas rattle with candles like restaurant kitchens. After three baths a day in Geborg, after hours stretched out face up on the balcony, after 40 years of holding books up to your lungs, you still smell of Austria. Your straight hair falls like currency in a counting machine. Books stuffed around the apartment fail to perform as air refresheners in Geborg. The yellow bile of Western Union in the dark streets. The sickly light of night trams under the high foreheads of polished apartments. Somber, as if they could know, as if they could smell. Stop smelling the past, Ingeborg. As the weep of silence rises, language tucks in its tail. And there it goes, the flaming sword of a street lamp. Adam is boarding a train, Eve is biting her elbows. Paradise has a tree that bears Eve's bitten elbows in Geborg. I embrace these words with my teeth as I lie face up on the balcony overlooking your Rome. Ours is a history whose every tooth is crowned. Silence bleeds us to language. Silence beats language out of us. Praise your silence, Ingeborg, your hole in the wall. Praise 
Polish apartments, orchards, beaten elbows, and silence. That was beautiful. Thank you. I really love Ingeborg Bachmann's poetry and prose. And uh, it's um, a poet um, that is very important to me because we also have shared history. Uh, Bachmann belongs to that generation of German language uh, writers and poets in Austria and in Germany who come right after World War II, who are also the inheritors of um, that history of fascism and Nazism uh, in Eastern Europe. And she's somebody who is writing out of that wound, out of the trauma. She's somebody who is writing, um, battling um, that that history and thinking about language and the way that is used. She says um, that language is a punishment, right? This is something that comes up here in my poem where I say that, well, Ingeborg, actually punishment is silence mm. <laughs> too sometimes. Um, and then she says uh, somewhere famously that wars are no longer declared, right? They only continue now. And so I was in Rome, and Rome is an overwhelming city. Um, there's so much to see in it. And my way of getting to know Rome was to um, separate it into writers who lived there hmm. and to walk their routes where they, li- where they lived, where they went to drink wine, <laughs> um, and um, where they wrote so um, I had my um, Nikolai Gogol, Rome, Root, Giordano Bruno, and also Ingeborg Bachmann. So I traced every single apartment where she lived in Rome um, and where she also died uh, in fire. It is unclear whether it was an accident or a suicide. She um, most likely fell asleep with a cigarette, still lit. Um, so this is that imagery of her in bandages there. Um, and, um, uh, but also this is how I connect her to Giordano Bruno, who was burned, uh, on Campo di Fiori, uh, on the square in Rome, on a piazza in Rome, where there used to be a wine, um, a little wine place where Bachmann used to go and drink wine. And um, I like to think that she was looking at the center of the piazza, at the monument to Giordano Bruno. Um, and um, so this is a kind of a dark irony that she herself would also burn. Yeah. Um, and um, But then um, also there is some tension here with Ingeborg. Um, I never quite thought of uh, it before tracing her apartments and going on walks from one to another. I never thought about it in terms of economic class mm-hmm. before. I just thought that we kind of share a trauma on two different sides, but kind of loss and trauma non- nonetheless. But then I started walking around the, this route 
And I thought, wow, she lived in some fancy places. <laughs> <laughs> I, thought that, I thought that, you know, she really suffered on some really fancy balcony. <laughs> <laughs> it's the and best then, place to suffer. I don't know if you know that. <laughs> well, I, I get this, I get this, uh, some of this information from some memoirs of people who saw her in Rome and who wrote how she was obsessed with um, taking baths, with washing. And um, somebody comes to visit her once and she's just lying flat on a balcony. Um, So this is where that kind of imagery comes from. And so I would go and I would look up the windows of those apartments and I would look up at the balconies and I thought, wow, she was rich. (laughs) (laughs) And it never never occurred to me that before. Um, Because growing up, of course, we looked at Austria and Germany and East Germany in particular um, as some kind of land of many things that we did not have. Mm -hmm. And not only the quantity of them, but also kind of the prettiness of them, uh, that everything we had was kind of gray, and everything that came from afar had those neon colors, Hmm. for instance, that were completely non-present in our picture of the world. So if something was, say, neon pink, it was immediately foreign, mm. simply because it, th- th- this, those kind of colors, bright colors, was ne- no, never present in our lives. And so I thought about it economically, and I remembered our balconies at home. Uh, our balconies, both of them, um, were packed with stuff because we could not depend on buying produce in stores all the time. So uh, it really was kind of uh, a mass event in Eastern Europe, in Belarus, where everybody had a small summer house. And there you went there not to do barbecue leisurely and to lie in a hammock the way I do now in Ithaca, but that's where you went on the weekends to be a farmer and to work as a farmer and you had to grow things so that and then pickle everything mm. um so that in winter you d- were not dependent on the stores only so that uh you didn't have to buy food because people did not have money to buy all the food and so i just laughed as I stood in Rome under those balconies, remembering hours, because I tried to picture myself in my old apartment in Minsk, Mm. how I would come out there and lay down desperately, working through my traumas. And then I thought, of course, there would be no way for me to even stand. (laughs) (laughs) Too many, too many pickled things. (laughs) Yeah, because, because it was just storage. Nobody saw a balcony as a like a place to enjoy a view Mm -hmm. it was just potatoes and um yes pickled jars of pickled stuff but in the end i was surprised how much i was thinking about the the economics um (laughs) the financial side of uh, how we can get to suffer (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) and how we can in what conditions we get to think of um where we come from and so all of these things 
come together. Well, I really love that poem, and I'm very appreciative that you were willing to to read it for us. I'm thinking just to close things here of the the approaching end of the year, um, and wondering if you had some poets in mind that you might recommend to us as we're thinking about maybe maybe a different kind of 2021, and maybe some some poets to help us confront it together. Oh, thank you for that question. I'm really happy to do this because I think that this year was really uh, rich in uh, beautiful poetry books. There are um, at least two remarkable anthologies that right now on my table, the Anthology of African-American Poetry and of Native American Poetry, um, and anthologies are really great uh, because they are the polyphony of voices um, that one gets to read. I um, is that the Kevin uh, Young an- anthology? The- yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and then jo- Joy Hario did the Native American edited the Native American poetry anthology, um, and I really love um, Caroline Fauché's book in the lateness of the world. I was just um, talking to my students about it um, this week. I really love Victoria Cheng's book of mourning, Obit. Um, and um, I really love Eduardo Corral's book, um, The Guillotine, um, is really powerful and moving. Um, there are also some foreign poets that were published in translations in translation this year uh, and the one the books that I've already read I really love a book by uh, Alex Steger a Slovenian poet um, it came out from the White Pine press uh, let me just confirm the title he writes in that in the tradition of Thomas Solomon, um, above the sky beneath the earth. It's called. Mm-hmm. Um, I really love that book. And then um, the, you know there was a book that came out last year, a poetry book that I thought should have received more attention. So let me mention it here. It's a book by an Iraqi American poet, Dunya Mihai. It's called In Her Feminine Sign. Um, I really, really loved that book. These sound wonderful. Um, thank you so much. And will would you be willing to send me the, the names and titles so that I can put them up on the podcast website so that people can seek them out directly? Oh, yeah, with great pleasure. And I could add some more, too. That would be wonderful. There was, yeah, because the, there are some more books that I can think of that has uh, that really moved me this year, but also kind of awakened me. Um, I think we all need some awakening. Uh, so that would be that would be fantastic. Valgina Mort, thank you so much for spending time with me today and for this beautiful collection. Thank you. Thank you so much, Chris. I really am looking forward to seeing you in person. (laughs) Me too. (laughs) Okay, all the best.
Well, that's all for this episode. I want to quickly plug two forthcoming episodes that I think you'll be excited about. In January, I'll host my first ever Best of the Year show with special guest Molly Young, the literary critic for New York Magazine, and my vote for both king and queen of book reviews. In February, I'll welcome Gina Nutt, whose forthcoming collection of essays, Night Rooms, is going to knock you down. Until then, thanks to the singular Valgina Mort, whose recommendations will be up at burnedbybooks.com, and thanks to all of you for continuing to listen. This has been Burned by Books.